what does it mean to be a man? Why is it so hard to answer that question? Now, what I'm going to do uh, to kick this off this morning is I'm going to read the first few paragraphs from my new blog. So we have a new website. If you weren't here last week, it's a good website. So I'm going to encourage you to check it out. There's a lot more information on it, the groups that we have. It's a really a good, a good website. And I have started a weekly blog. And so there's a blog that um, it was going to be put on on Tuesday, but we put it on last night since it has to do with Father's Day. Um, and you can read the rest of it later. But to answer the question, what is a man really? I'm going to read to you the first two, three paragraphs of my, my blog. We live in a chaotic culture quickly cha- uh, changing the traditional definitions of roles and genders. And the one that we give little attention to is the true definition of a man. What makes a man a man? What expectation should he feel obligated to fulfill? Is there a foundational description that every man should seek to follow? Are there any good models of what that should look like? Is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? Is it Bill Gates? Is it Dalai Lama? We are so inundated with the images of Hollywood and cultural media in general that we are only confused at the end of the day. So confused that Bruce Jenner's transformation to Caitlyn is thought of as kind of the next obvious step in an already definitionless culture where everything goes. Now, I'm the first to admit that the culture that I grew up in did not always get it right. The good old days of yesteryear were not consistently pretty behind the scenes. In my childhood, I thought my world was rather perfect. But as I got older, I discovered that addictions, abuse, adultery were significant problems in the men that I had looked up to, that I had admired on both sides of the family. Uh, But if you will allow me, I would like to use my own father as an example of both what we think of as a traditional man Uh, or definition of a man, and also as a man who actually chased after eventually what a godly man looks like, which is not always the same as what the culture says a man should be. Um, My dad went to heaven 14 years ago, this week, in fact. In fact, uh, Wesley Aarons, who passed away yesterday, um, is a somewhat of a mirror of my father. They were both in the Navy Um, they both came from the same generation and, uh, and even their, their death is at the same time of year. And, um, it's difficult for me not to think as my father as anything but a man's man. He was of strong character. He was faithful. He was disciplined. He worked no less than three jobs at a time. Never. (laughs) Always had three jobs going. Um, he served in the Navy, was, was Navy. He was a career fireman on an Army base. Um, he was the town building inspector. He handcrafted picture frames for literally thousands of people. He had both a shop and went to craft shows. Uh, he disciplined his two boys, 
immediately following the first line of disobedience. I have several memories to prove that. And uh, he would not let us quit, you know. He was, uh, uh, he was a father who would not let us settle for mediocre, but always strive to be the best. Um, he was a man, he was a man's man in anybody's book. However, my father, uh, I saw him go through incredible change over his adult years. And I couldn't have identified it as a child, but I have the memory of it and now can look back and see what changes, some of the changes that he had gone through. And, uh, uh, it's a good, storyline, if you will, of, of not just being the man's man that your culture wants you to be, but being the, the, God, the godly man, God's man that God wants you to be. And the struggle that we go through as men trying to work that out, and it is a struggle. One of the greatest examples of this is King David before he was king, and also while he was king. David was truly a man's man. If, if we're going we're gonna to learn something today, and that's how to man up. If anybody knew how to man up, it was, it was David, both in the physical sense, in the cultural sense, and in the spiritual sense. David, uh, you know, was a warrior, a fighter. He defeated Goliath, and after that was known to be victorious in most of his battles. Uh, David also played the guitar, I mean the harp, and, and he, he sang worship songs and wrote worship songs, and he knew of the other side of God that was tender and sweet and gentle. And he, was, he was a godly man and a man's man as, as they might have viewed it. And so he's a good example of what I want to do today. So we're going to begin by reading, looking at the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, and we'll get to, re- we'll read a couple of verses in just a minute, but let me paint the background for you. Uh, David was, um, as you remember, before he was king, uh, he was running from King Saul and the army of Israel because Saul was jealous. Saul kind of knew what was coming down the road, that David would become king. And so Saul didn't handle that too well. And he started chasing after David. He wanted to kill him. David ran and he wouldn't fight Saul. He didn't, he, he honored the king. He had a right attitude toward that. And eventually David did something that was rather crazy. David, not wanting to run any longer, went over to the enemy's side, the, the Philistines, for crying out loud, the very people that, uh, had, uh, you know, where he had defeated Goliath. Well, he goes to them and says, let me stay in this particular city, and I won't bother you if you'll let us stay there and be protected from Saul. And so especially this one military man allowed him to do that, and they became friends over time. And so they lived in kind of a season of peace, but they were hiding in the, in the enemy's territory. This town was called Ziklag, and many of you will remember the story. David did something a little crazy while he was there, and he didn't really ask God about it. You know, there are these stories in the Scripture, not always was God actually involved in what they were doing. David didn't actually ask God about this. He just thought he would 
kind of do a, a little sneaky thing with the, with the Philistines. And when the Philistines one day gathered up for war against Israel, uh, David came and said, hey, you know, I'm hanging out back here. Uh, let me help you. And uh, this one friend of his, this military leader, believed him. But nobody else believed him. They knew that Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They knew that he was the guy as a, as a teenager who had slain Goliath. They knew who this guy was. And they didn't trust for one minute that David would actually fight on their side, that once they got into battle, he would probably turn on them. And it doesn't say, but that's my guess, because David was not, the reason he was there is because he didn't want to fight Saul. So uh, he wasn't about to do that now. He was going to actually turn on them and, uh, and help Israel defeat. That's what I think. It doesn't say that, but that seems rather obvious to me. This wasn't God's idea. This, David was just messing around. And while they were there, something terrible happened. There's another enemy called the Amalekites. And David had, well, he had probably messed around with them one time too many, and they had been looking for this opportunity. So they came to Ziklag while David and the mighty men were gone, where all of their wives and children were there alone, unprotected. And the Amalekites came in and took all of their wives and children, and they burned the city to the ground. And so David and his mighty men were told to go back to their town uh, uh, because they weren't allowed to fight. But when they got there, that's what they found. They're standing in the middle of the city. Everything burned to the ground. Their wives and their children taken captive. And David realizes that what he has done could be called absolute failure, right? So let me read to you these verses, verse 3 and 4. First uh, Samuel 30. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. You might want to meditate on that for a moment. Because every person eventually finds themselves in that spot. Now, maybe, maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I see this in everyone's life that I've noticed. Everybody comes to a moment where they feel as if they have been a failure or the whole world is falling apart. Everyone arrives at this moment and sometimes more than once. Now, I, I want to say something about fatherhood and manhood here, is that there's not a man in this room who is going to stand up and say, I have been totally successful. I've been a successful man. I've been a successful father. We all, listen, every man faces his own faults, his failures. He doesn't like to talk about them, but he faces them inwardly. He knows that he's inadequate. He knows that what he has is not enough, but he doesn't always admit it. But that's, that's, that's the, the reality of the scenario. David's situation is not unlike what any of us might go through. And so, so this is a great story for us because, you know, it, it, it brings to home uh, uh, every, every man's world. David 
finds himself in that spot. And here's what it says. If you'll look at verses six and seven, um, I'm sorry, that's, here we go. Now, David, six through eight, actually. Now, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. These were his mighty men, okay? These people were his warriors, his mighty men. And now because of his failure, they are blaming him and they're turning against him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David... Now, just pay close attention to what happens here because it's a powerful uh, scene. We're going to dig a little deeper on it uh, this morning. David strengthened himself. Some versions say encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. It was just this thing they used to cover themselves and pray in. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord. Look at this. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. David prayed. But David did something before he actually prayed. He strengthened himself in the Lord. This goes a little deeper than the definition of prayer by asking God for something. David actually did something that God has given us to do, and it's something that only we can do. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give us the grace to help us do it, but it takes our own initiative to dig into that place where there's discouragement, where there might have been fault or failure, to dig really deep and to encourage or strengthen ourselves in the Lord. This is not just for the men. There's a place in your relationship with God where he's kind of waiting for that so that When you come to him in prayer, you come in faith, not just in despair. I'm sure in his despairing moment, he cried out to God, Oh Lord, what have I done? Oh Lord, help me. But it was, it was a a distress call. But then David went deep into that spot where courage can only rise up if you arrive there, where you are, where you are defying all of the, all of the hell that is being thrown against you. And you are beginning to worship anyway. You're beginning to rejoice in the Lord anyway. You know, rejoice doesn't mean be happy necessarily. Rejoicing is something that we do in the Lord. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, that wasn't a mistake. Always. He didn't say rejoice always in your circumstances. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And that includes all of your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just so you are sure to get it right, he said, and again I say rejoice. And David found that spot. He had no reason to rejoice. But he went into that place 
where we discover the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, has nothing to do with the circumstances, has nothing to do with your emotions. It has nothing to do with the pursuit of happiness. This has to do with a powerful place where God is God and nothing else really matters. And you discover the strength and the power of God. We call that joy. It's always misunderstood, but it's something that's there always in the place of rejoicing. And so David did that. This is old covenant David stirred in that place. There's a new covenant version of it. And that is Paul when he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul said, and by the way, Paul treated Timothy like a son. He called him his son, even though he was, it was his son in the Lord. He said, therefore, I remind you, stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you're in the place of fear, stir up the gifting of God in you. Stir up the presence of God in you. Um, uh, I'm going to give you three things today. And the first one is man up to prayer. Now, we often think of our prayer life men, we, always, we often think of some, it's something that, you know, the ladies can do really well. But I want you to read another Timothy scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. This is Paul's description of what he wants out of a man. And we know that's true. You know, often the word man or man is just talking about mankind. It includes the women. But this is not true here. He's talking about the men, he says. And then he speaks to the women. So he says to the men this. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So he's saying, men, have a prayer life. Man up to prayer. This is what David did. When he stirred himself up and encouraged himself in the Lord, he was manning up to prayer. He didn't feel like praying. He didn't feel God's presence. He, he wanted to run inside, but he manned up by strengthening himself in the Lord, by rejoicing when there was no rejoicing to be done, by encouraging himself, he manned up and brought himself to a place where he could pray in faith again. Man up to prayer. Man up to prayer. It's a guy thing to pray. God's definition. So we have a man's man, and my father definitely was a man's man, okay? He you, we, you know, in that generation, they and their brothers, my father was a little young, about 13 or so during uh, World War II. And so he didn't go off to war. He did join the service later, and he was in the service during the Korean War. But in that day, when men, we're talk, we're t we think today of men, you know, our veterans, so forth, they're older. These guys were 18 years old going off to war and fighting and defending their country and dying on the battlefield. They knew what it meant to man up. When they thought about manning up, they were thinking about, at 18 years old, I could be given my life for my country. They didn't have a choice. They had to man up whether they liked it or not. 
That's what they thought of when they thought of man up. They knew that it required incredible courage. That's the generation they came from. And so that's where my father's mentality was when you don't quit, when you keep plowing forward, when you work three jobs. You know, that, that's where that mentality comes from. But that doesn't always, that culture did not actually produce necessarily the godly man. The godly man was a man who actually had to learn how to pray. My father went through this transition, so I saw both sides. I saw the cultural man's man. Then I saw him becoming a godly man over his adult life, all the way until he went on to heaven in 2001. But my father, I'll never forget this, because my father was not an expressive person. He's not one that would show his spirituality. And so I know my mother's here, and I've been talking a lot about her lately, but I'm not going to stop today. So mother, um, mother, uh, I don't know. It was a little bit of missionary dating there, mother. I'm not sure where daddy was exactly spiritually before you got married. But I know this for true, that my mother was always challenging him and, and the two boys where they were spiritually. Here's, here's my mother's philosophy in life. If it's in the Bible, then I want it for me and for my husband and for my boys, all right? And so there was always this gentle, sweet, but firm pressure on the family to move forward spiritually. And so my father lived with that every day. And, uh, and so he would be challenged to go places he probably didn't want to go, you know, with my mother to meetings. Uh, it was really my mother's heritage that went to church every Sunday and prayed at night and, and uh, studied the Bible. And that was really mother's heritage, not daddy's. And uh, one day, I'll never forget this, I saw more change after this. Um, when I was in college, my freshman year, I had to take a class. And that class was called Holy Spirit in the Now. And it was taught by Oral Roberts. It was actually taught by him personally. It was one of the few classes where he actually taught the class. There were a thousand kids in the class, you know. And so uh, he it was an incredible class. So I, for Christmas, you never know what to get your father for Christmas. So I, I got my father a cassette tape series. Yes, I said cassette. I am that old. Okay. And I got a cassette tape series and of 13, I remember, 13 classes. And I gave that to him for Christmas. Well, come the summer, uh, I was home for that summer, my only summer home after my freshman year. And one day, my father, he worked 24 hours on, 24 off as a civil service fireman at Fort Bragg. And he came home early one morning after driving an hour. He was alone a lot. And some days the guys would drive together. Some days he's alone. And so he's He's coming home, he's alone, he's, he's been listening to these cassettes for several weeks, months, and he walks in one morning, mother and I saw him come in the house, and his face, my dad hardly ever cried, his face was just emaciated with tears, and his eyes glazed over, and he had this, it's really funny, sweet, but, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, almost draining look on his face as he walked in the door. And it's, what happened? What's wrong? When we see the cassettes in his arms, daddy's been listening to the tapes over and over again. 
And we believe that morning. You see, he wouldn't talk about it very much. That's the day he was baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that daddy, daddy uh, eventually, he responded. Eventually, he learned to go to God and cry out to him. He wanted what God had for him. I saw something happen to my dad after that. Um, my dad began to tenderize more after that. He, you know what being filled with the Holy Spirit really is? It's actually, finally, it, it's, it's like it's being totally overwhelmed with the love of God. That, you know, it's, it's not just a technical thing that God does to fill you with His Spirit. He's overwhelming you with who He is and what He thinks about you. And so my father began to respond more tenderly. And um, uh, so Daddy, Daddy manned up to prayer but he also manned up to love. You know, that scripture I read said, uh, I desire therefore the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath. Um, There's an encouragement here. Why did Paul say that about the men? Without wrath. A man's anger can sometimes get the best of him. And Paul's saying, don't let that happen. Learn how to control the strength and and sometimes the anger that comes. You know, men don't like the word meek, meekness. But you, you, you can't be a God, a God's man. You can't be a godly man without bringing the, your strength and power under control. See? And so without wrath, learn how, to, learn how to confront in love. Learn how to lead with love. There's a tender side of God. That that verse I quoted a while ago, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Then it says, uh, let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your graciousness be known to all men. That, that's, let your forbearing spirit, that's another interpretive word, your, your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's character and nature is one of gentleness, of tenderness. And so that's, that's, that's a God's man. That's a God. That's manning up. Man up to love. A man is called to love. It's part of God's nature and character for us to walk that out. And then last of all, uh, man up to faith, you know. Man up to faith. Da- Daddy was uh, one of these very pragmatic. I mean, he believed you could do anything because you could do anything. You know, he just believed that, that uh, you know, that he was strong enough and that we boys were strong enough to never quit, always, you know, do a little harder. And, and so his faith was really more in who he was and what he could do initially. But I saw this transformation where daddy, you know, eventually he realized that there's, there's just not enough in us to do what we've been called to do. We're inadequate. We meet our challenges and sometimes can't step up to the plate. We, we see our faults and our weaknesses. We know what it means to fail. And so I saw Daddy transition where he began to believe for things and to actually uh, faith began to grow in his life. And, and uh, my, daddy, my daddy was very pragmatic. But the day I asked him, I was trembling asking him, about my desire to go off to college 1,200 miles away. That was a big thing in those days. And, and my daddy saying something like, 
son, if you believe it's the Lord, then I'll do everything in my power to help you. Now that, it just hit me between the eyes when he said, it was like my dad stepping up with me to a place of faith. I'd been pastoring for several years there in North Carolina, and, uh, and daddy was, daddy could fix anything, build anything, and so I can't. So daddy would come over and help me. If he would show me what to do, I could do it, okay? I just didn't learn it as a kid. So he was over actually building an extra closet in the boys' room, uh, and uh, I was helping him with that. And I, so I started sharing with my dad. I said, Daddy, now I'm, I'm pastoring the church at the time in North Carolina. I said, Daddy, I'm really feeling that God is calling me to go to Uganda. He said, really? He said, when? I said, next week. What's that all about? Well, it was a, there was a pastor who had come over, and he was pastoring a very large church. He's a, quite the national, international leader. And, uh, and there was a relationship happening there, some things he wanted me to do, but I couldn't do it without first seeing what he was doing there. And I said, Daddy, it's kind of a strange thing, but he has a conference, and he has said to me, this is a good time for you to come, even though it's this quick. I said, I haven't told the church yet. I don't really know. I've got to find out, you know, if I can arrange this. But I don't have any money, so I don't know that I could go. And, and Daddy looked at me and said, you really feel like this is the Lord? Yes, sir. He said, then call and get your whatever you need and go. I'll help you get there. I looked at him and I thought, who is this man? Because I, I didn't see that side of daddy when we were younger. I knew he would do anything he could. But he was coming into the place of faith with me. I hadn't even gotten a visa yet. I got my visa to Uganda in three days. Three days. There was, it was, there was a, there was a, Almost magical, and I know that's not a good word, but there was a, a, a miraculous dynamic to that whole experience. But the fun thing about it was that my daddy and I were walking together in faith. We were rising up in faith together to see it happen. So man up to faith. Man up to faith. That's, that's God's call. That's a God man, not just a man's man. You know, a man's man will fall short. God's man can do things we've never even thought of before. Let's stand together.